Good morning. My name is Russell Brown, and I serve on the Elder Council here at FBC. And today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 19, 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You may be seated. Good morning. Have your Bible open to Luke chapter 19. We'll be in verses 28 through 44 this morning. Let me open our time in prayer. God, we thank you for the joy it is to know you through and in the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray as we take a few minutes this morning to think about your word, that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our heart and that you would show us yourself and that we would be moved to worship you because you are our God and our King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is, What Matters When Jesus Shows Up? What Matters When Jesus Shows Up? There's a popular television show. It's been on for a while. I don't know if it's still on, but I've uh, seen clips of it online and whatnot. It's called Undercover Boss. You heard of this? So uh, a CEO or a company owner disguises themselves as an entry-level employee and works in their company to kind of see what's, what's going on. And they get treated in a number of different ways depending on what the people think of this boss who is in disguise. In many cases, the CEO does not have the ability to do very basic jobs within their very own company, and so they get treated rather poorly. And what happens is, at the end of the show, of course, the CEO reveals themselves to their employees. He lets everybody know, hey, look, oh, I'm the CEO. And and everybody, all the employees have different responses to that, and you can see it in their eyes as they, the CEO comes out and says, hey, I was that guy in the disguise. They're immediately thinking back to all the ways they interacted with that person, aren't they? Okay, what I say to this person now that I discover he's really, really important. How we respond to somebody, how we treat them, uh, reveals what we think about them. And what Jesus is going to show us in this passage today is he made known to the people around him who he was and how they responded to that information showed what they believed. And Russell read the second part of this passage. The first part of the passage is a famous section I'm sure you're well acquainted with. We often call it the triumphal entry. So if you don't mind, let me read verses 28. Uh, through the end of the section, through verse 40, 28 through 40. When Jesus had said these things, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. 
And as he was drawing near, uh, sorry, my device decided to turn the page without me. <laughs> that's, not, that's not appropriate. As he, there it is. As he was drawing near, already on the way, and some of you are, that's why you should use a paper Bible. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it. The words are too small in the paper Bible. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had been seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus is here on the Mount of Olives, a place I'm sure you are familiar with in your scripture, Jerusalem, is just to the west of the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is just then, of course, to the east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is a ridge of mountains, a couple of mile long, miles long, a little bit higher than the city of Jerusalem, and they're separated by a valley between them that we call the Kidron Valley. At the base of this valley is the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is making his way, remember he was in Jericho, which is even further east down in the wilderness. He's now made his way up the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives to Bethany and Bethphage, and he's getting ready to descend down the slopes of the Mount of Olives, cross the Kidron Valley, and enter Jerusalem. And he gives instructions to his disciples to go and get a colt. And what he's going to do is he's going to make clear to everybody who's with him, which we're going to discover is a rather large crowd, he is going to make clear what he's been saying really repeatedly. That is, he is the son of David, the king, the Messiah, God himself. But he's going to say it in a way that's maybe even more abrupt than he has before. And the way he says it is by having this donkey brought that he might ride the donkey uh, into a Jerusalem. Now, some of us would say that doesn't seem very compelling. If I see a guy riding on a donkey, I'm not going to immediately be struck. Wow, this guy must be incredible. He's riding a donkey. I mean, the only time I've seen people riding donkeys at those charity things, have you seen donkey basketball? Have you seen this? I mean, I'm not immediately struck with the nobility of the people playing donkey basketball. But in the Old Testament, this was a huge deal. Jesus, by riding this donkey into Jerusalem, was fulfilling scripture, and so anyone who knew their Older Testament would recognize that he is the Messiah, the King, the Son of David. And so by doing this, he's making it clear who he is, and then he is going to expect people, knowing who he is, to respond appropriately to him. That's his expectation. He's going to make known through his actions who he is, and then he's going to expect individuals who are understanding who he is to respond appropriately, the appropriate response when in the presence of the king is worship. The appropriate response when in the presence of the son of David, king of kings and lord of lords, creator of the universe, is worship. So what matters when Jesus shows up is how we worship him. How we worship him. Jesus sent his disciples to go into the village and get a donkey. They found a colt. What was important was that this colt had never been ridden. I don't know if you've ever ridden an animal that is not used to being ridden. They typically respond as you would expect, that is, to not be ridden. 
and as quickly as possible get rid of the rider. Jesus had no problem riding this animal, and this again is one of the ways that he's making clear who he is. This beast of burden is responding in worship. This isn't the only time in the Bible we've seen these kinds of things. There's another donkey that responds in worship to God. His rider was a guy named Balaam, and he, this donkey knelt down onto the ground to keep Balaam from being killed as an act of worship of the angel of the Lord who had his sword drawn. The, uh, Balaam beat the donkey, and the donkey finally said, why are you beating me? That's not strange, as somebody has pointed out. It isn't strange that the donkey talked to Balaam. What's strange is Balaam talked back. <laughs> That's it's not normal. There's another occasion where animals acted strangely. The Philistines had captured the Ark of the Lord, and they had discovered, because they have the Ark of the Covenant, that the people of their cities were getting sick and dying. And they got together and tried to figure out a way in which they could properly return the Ark of the Covenant to the people of Israel. They built a cart and attached to the cart two cows that had never, ever, ever pulled a cart. And these were mommy cows who had baby cows. They took the baby cows away from the mommy cows and put them in the barn and then turned the cows loose on the road with the, ar with the cart pulling the Ark of the Covenant. What are those cows going to do? They're going to go to the barn. What did these cows do? They stayed right in the middle of the road and walked directly to the people of Israel because they understood who's in charge, God. And so here we have Jesus on this donkey that's never been ridden, and this donkey is showing us what creation does when God shows up, creation worships. Why is this important? Where is this in the Older Testament that Jesus, the Messiah, rides the donkey? Zechariah 9, verse 9. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. So everyone knew this verse. This is a very famous verse in the first century. Everybody was expecting when the Messiah showed up, he'd be riding on a donkey. And here's Jesus doing that. The author of the Gospel of John, John himself, uh, related the same story with a little bit more familiar language than that we're used to about this triumphal entry. This is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, meaning to fulfill scripture, Zechariah 9, 9, fear not, daughter Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So Jesus, riding the donkey into Jerusalem, is making it clear he is the Messiah, the son of David, the king, who will sit on the throne of David forever. Everyone who recognizes this knows and understands all of the hopes that they had had in God, had in God that had seemed long delayed were now coming true. So everything they had ever hoped for God, you can think of the 400 years from the end of the Older Testament, through the Maccabean Wars and all the suffering of the people of Israel under Antiochus Epiphanes and all other kinds of terrible things the people of Israel endured under the Romans. And now you have the king of kings riding in a donkey. Everything they had ever hoped for was now coming true. 
What matters when he shows up is they worshiped him as king. And that's exactly what, he, what they did. Now, one thing to make note of as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, do you remember what he was going to, what the plan is in Jerusalem? This isn't, it's not a trick question. Some of you are like, I don't know. If I say he's going to get crucified, it'll be wrong. No, he's going, that's the plan. He's going to Jerusalem to die on the cross. He's made this abundantly clear with his disciples. Even though he has made it very clear, they are not clearly understanding it. But nonetheless, he has made it quite clear. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I will die there, and I will be raised from the dead three days later. He's told them this a number of times. That's the whole plan. So he's on his way to Jerusalem, but look at everything that's going on. The donkey is where it's supposed to be. The donkey walks like it's supposed to walk. The people worship as they're supposed to worship. Everything is happening exactly as he intends for it to happen. One writer said it this way, and I think this is very, very helpful. Jesus is reigning as king of the universe on his way to the cross. He has not taken a break from being in charge of all that he has made, which is everything. As he's making his way toward the cross, he is still reigning as king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is in control. Everything is as he intended uh, for it to be. Verse 32 of Luke 19. Those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. Because Jesus was in charge. The, the people worshipped Jesus as you walked in uh, on this donkey. And they quoted from Psalm 118. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the people worshipped him. Now some people didn't like all this worship going on. They felt that it was inappropriate. Maybe the people were getting a little rowdy getting a little too boisterous. I mean, it's fine to raise your hands, but once you start waving, okay, now we, we got to draw the line. Is that what you were talking about, Seth? When, yeah, okay, there's a line. Um, they didn't like this worship going on. Look at what it says. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees, not all of them, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why would the Pharisees want him to rebuke his disciples in the crowd who is worshiping him? Because they have rejected him as king. Now, if he is the Messiah, the Pharisees would have readily agreed these people were responding the way they should respond. Worship and adoration. The problem is the Pharisees did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, or worse yet, they knew he was the Messiah and they didn't like what they got. And so they were rejecting him as king. Just look a little bit earlier in your scripture, Luke 19, 14. Jesus had told a parable about a landowner who had gone to be appointed king. And when he was being appointed king, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Who is being referenced there? Those who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The Pharisees object. They reject Jesus as king, and they object to the people worshiping Jesus uh, as the Messiah. Jesus wants them to understand they don't know how creation works. Jesus knows how creation works because he made the whole thing. There is nothing that is that he did not make. So look what he says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The creator of the universe will be worship. That's not a question. Jesus is going to be worshiped. 
So when you show up and worship, when we show up and worship, we don't, we got to understand, we get to, he doesn't need it because he's going to get his worship. He just lets us be a part of the party, but we're not a necessary component of the party. Let me just point out a psalm, Psalm 148. I'm going to read the whole thing if my voice holds out. Now stop praying that my voice will quit. That's just rude. Here's what worship looks like. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Angels praise him. Praise him, all his hosts. That's groups of angels praise him. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens. There are parts of the heavens that are praising Jesus today the web telescope hasn't seen yet. Keep looking. Every time we find something new, it's already been there praising Jesus. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, Stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying birds. King of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near him. Praise the Lord. Creation gets it. He made it. We praise him. The people who saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem understood it. He is the creator and the king and the Messiah. He ought to be praised. The Pharisees didn't want him as Messiah. They had rejected him, and so they objected to the worship. Of Jesus. What matters most, what matters when Jesus show up is that we worship him because he is king. That we worship him because he is king. Worship is this. Here's what worship is if you want a kind of a working definition. Seeing who Jesus is, receiving him by faith as he is, not as we wish he would be, and recognizing that he is the best thing to happen to us. To fail to worship Jesus reveals, in some sense, rebellion and rejection of Jesus. I don't want to sound cra you know, crabby. That sounds a little negative, doesn't it? Jeez. Well, I've got a bit of a cold, so I have an excuse. I get to be grumpy. To fail to worship Jesus on some level reveals a heart of rejection against him. That's what we see in this passage. We see worshipers who receive Jesus as king and creator, and we see non-worshipers who reject him as Messiah. To fail to worship Jesus is to misunderstand who he is. To worship Jesus is to respond to the revelation of who he is, creator and king. And if we fail to worship, 
Don't worry. There's two billion galaxies who are handling it for you. Ones we've never seen. So he's not going to run out of worship. But he's saying, do you want to be a part of it? What matters most when Jesus show up? I don't know why I keep saying most. It's not even in my notes. What matters when Jesus show up is we worship him because he is king. Next thing we might ask ourselves as we look at the next passage as he gets near to Jerusalem and weeps is what matters when Jesus shows up, how do we please him? If we recognize he is king and we worship him as king and creator, we might say to ourselves, I would hope we would say to ourselves, well, how do I please this king? What about my life would be pleasing to him? Thankfully, in this passage, he tells us exactly what pleases him. When you think about warfare, which I'm sure you think about warfare all the time. Well, I suppose if you turn on the, on the news, you think about warfare. Whenever there's an invasion, there's an effort to figure out how do we get to peace. There's always an effort to figure out how to get to peace. So the question is, how do we get to peace, and how much is it going to cost? That's all it is. It's very, very simple. War is very, very simple, isn't it? How do we get to peace, and how much is it going to cost? There's a number of ways to arrive at peace. Number one, surrender. Do whatever the guys who invaded tell you to do, and you will be at peace, but you will be enslaved. So that's a decision that's been made many, many times over history. A big invading force comes in. The only way to have peace is to surrender. What's the cost? It costs you your freedom. Another way to do that in ancient times was to become a vassal kingdom. You kind of have your independence, but you've got to send 100,000 sheep to another guy every once a year or something like this. You've got to pay a guy. Another way to maybe seek peace is to call an ally. Call a friend over. Phone a friend. Hey, I'm getting invaded. If I give you a bunch of money, will you come over and help me defend my land? And your buddy might come over and say, yeah, let's get rowdy. And so that's how you can get some peace, is maybe call an ally. Another way to get peace, this is a great way to get peace, it's one of the best ways to get peace, go to battle and win. Go in, fight. What's the cost? Obviously human lives, obviously loss of property and material, obviously war is terrible. But these are the things that people who are being invaded or invading wonder. Well, how do we arrive at the cessation of hostilities and how much it is going to cost? How do we get to peace? When Jesus appears, when he finally returns in one, one day, the only thing that matters is whether or not you and he are at peace with one another. That's the only thing that's going to matter on that day. Now, today, there's lots of things that seem like they matter. You wonder if we're going to get done in time so you can get to Costco and get a shrimp platter for the party. And they might be sold out of shrimp platters. I don't know why I'm thinking about shrimp platters. Whatever you want to get at Costco. So there's lots of things we think are really, really important. But on that day, the only thing that matters when he shows up is, am I at peace with him? Is there peace between he and I? So knowing how to have that peace, I'm being serious here, knowing how to have peace between he and I, since on that day that's all that's going to matter, knowing how to have peace between he and I is the highest priority of any human life. That's the highest priority, is how do I have peace with the one who one day is going to come back and remind us, I made it all. Here's what Jesus said. He drew near to the city, this is Jerusalem, and he wept over it. We need to pay attention, that word wept, we sort of think of Jesus riding kind of tall on his steed, his donkey. 
And he sees Jerusalem, and the wind is sort of blowing his hair, which has been conditioned. We have no idea how he had conditioner. It's blowing, and he's got like a three-day growth. You know, not like normal people would have a beard, but he's got like a three-day chiseled jaw, and his lip is just barely quivering in a single tear. Trails down his... That's kind of what we think. It's like, like this would be the cover of a Western novel. That's not this word here. He's ugly crying. The kind of crying where when you try to talk, your diaphragm has a seizure, and, you, and then you get the hiccups, and then snot comes out. Have you ever had that kind of... This is the crying that... This is sobbing. It's the same kind of crying he did at Lazarus' tomb, by the way. This isn't the polite kind of public crying we do when we go to a, a movie. This is somebody who is devastated emotionally. He's weeping over it. He's wondering, why, 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 why would you not seek peace? Look at he says, would that you, that you would have known on this day the things that make peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. What was hidden from Israel's eyes? They wanted peace, but they wanted peace with all of the wrong things. They wanted peace with Rome. They wanted peace between their warring religious and political factions. They wanted peace uh, with God, but on their terms. And Jesus said, would that, oh, would that. This is Jesus saying, oh, I wish in my heart that you would have recognized that which would have brought about peace, but you, haven't, you hadn't seen it. And this caused Jesus to weep. What would have pleased Jesus? That Israel would have sought peace with God through faith in the crucified and risen Messiah. That's what he would have hoped for. That they would have abandoned all their false hopes for peace and instead pursued peace through faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Verse 43, he utters what we might describe as an oracle. This kind of oracle can be either a blessing or a curse. This one has the sense of being a curse. I'm not getting emotional. I have a runny nose. I want you to think less of me. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down everything. Jesus is moved with compassion because Israel has completely missed the means by which they can have peace. And because of that, judgment is coming. And that day is about 40 years from this moment. A.D. 70, General Titus of Rome will invade and lays siege to Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus estimates that one million people died in the city of Jerusalem during that siege. They didn't die on day one. Sieges take a long time. It was one of the most awful sieges in history. And when he finally broke through the wall, he turned Jerusalem into a pile of ash. Rome built a, an arch in Rome dedicating uh, this great victory over Jerusalem. And Titus eventually became Caesar. This judgment came. This city that rejected the Messiah, Jesus is saying, you have sought peace with all the wrong people. 
You have sought peace with Rome. You won't have it. You have sought peace between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You won't have it. You have sought peace between the zealots and the religious leaders. You won't have it. The only way to have peace is to have the peace that never ends. And that peace is peace with God through faith in the crucified Savior. That's the only way to have peace is to have peace that never ends. We have to pay, pay attention to something about Jesus, though, and this bothers us a little bit. I don't know if it bothers us as much as his conditioned hair blowing in the air, but it bothers us that Jesus does not negotiate peace, but he does provide it. He has no interest in providing peace on your terms or mine, but he will provide it fully on his. The only way to have peace with God is to admit I have rebelled against God and need forgiveness of my sin and by faith trust that his death on the cross pays for my sin and because he is raised from the dead, one day I get to live with him forever. And he's not negotiating. One of the problems is we don't like admitting that we have rebelled against God. It's really easy to know if you've ever rebelled against God. Are you ready? It's a one-question test. Have you been born? If you have been born, you have rebelled against God because we inherited that from our parents. And it took us about 10 minutes to act on that. And Jesus says, I will make peace with you even though you have rebelled against me by providing my own life as a sacrifice so you don't have to sacrifice yours. What matters when Jesus shows up on that day? Do you have peace with God? If you don't have peace with God on that day, you will be separated from God forever, and that's bad news. This is the only peace that matters because it lasts forever. Again, getting back to this, we have to be reminded of this. Today, with all of the stuff of our life and good things that we're excited about, it seems like that peace doesn't matter as much as it does. But what those people on the Mount of Olives who were worshiping Jesus with the palm branches and everything else recognized is he is here. What we have to recognize is he is here. He has departed, so as believers, we were given his Holy Spirit who indwells us. And as a result, we have peace with God and the presence of God, which will never end. So what pleases Jesus? To seek peace with God through his sacrifice and resurrection by faith. He is not a reluctant savior. He is an enthusiastic Savior. He delights in our seeking peace with him. Now, I can tell from looking around the room, a couple of you have been Christians for more than 10 minutes. Some of you got saved by the Apostle Paul himself. <laughs> Shannon's giving me a look. You're in trouble. That's all right. That's the NyQuil talking. How do you know things are cool with you and God? You've been a Christian a long time. How do you know things are cool with you and God? You woke up today and you thought about yesterday. How'd it go? I better get to church because I need to have peace with God. Anybody think that? That's very, very common. Saturday, we kind of got a bit rowdy. Better go to church and get cleaned up. Coming to church will not give, give you peace with God. End of story. You do not get to buy God's peace by attending church. Nice try. Maybe you get the swear jar out. 
man, you want to save some money, there's a way to go, right? You're going to Disneyland in like six months. The swear jar out. Yesterday, you put about $100 in it. So you're going to sit down, have a conversation with the family. Okay, I said some of the bad words, and I'm going to try and... So now we're going to pay the price. We're going to self-flatulate, whip ourselves a bit, pout around a little bit, seem like we feel bad. Because the way to have peace with God is to feel bad for a while. How do you have peace with God if you've been a Christian for a long time? It's not complicated. Trust Jesus. Everything's good with you and Jesus today, not because you were good, bad, or not good, or not bad yesterday. It's because Jesus was good again yesterday for you. And he was good again today for you. And Jesus will be good again tomorrow for you. Everything's good with God, and he takes great delight and is, is immensely pleased. Listen, he's immensely pleased when you recognize what makes peace between you and God. What makes peace between you and God? Thank you, Jesus, for saving a, a guy like me. Again, you remind me of your mercy is new every morning. And he said, well, that, how could that please Jesus? I'm not worried about it. That's what the Bible says. Aren't you a Baptist? Yeah, that, somehow, I, well, I know what the name is on the church, but... Well, no, that's, that's a Baptist distinctive if you want a Baptist. The Bible says it. We believe it. And the Bible says Jesus is pleased when you trust him that everything's cool between you and God just because you trust him. That's what your Bible says. So don't come at me with this, I got to be good to make Jesus happy. He's not pleased with that. What pleases him is when his children trust him. I know things are good between God and I because I have trusted Jesus. He isn't a reluctant savior. He delights in our seeking peace with him. He delights with us when we come to him and, Lord, I blew it again yesterday. Can I have your peace? Because Jesus saved someone like me. And he delights in bestowing his peace on us. What matters when Jesus shows up? How we worship him as king. And how we please him by recognizing what makes for peace. Trusting Jesus. Three things, and then we'll be we'll close. Let's talk about worship a little bit more. The Pharisees, when they were looking at these people worshiping Jesus, you remember that thing on the Mount of Olives where they were worshiping him and they rebuked on Jesus to rebuke him? The Pharisees noticed, because of the worship of the people around Jesus, what they believed about Jesus. What did they recognize about their beliefs by watching these people? They recognized that this crowd believed Jesus was the Messiah. They were able to, by examining the worship of individuals, recognize what they believed about Jesus. Do you see where I'm going? If somebody looked at our worship, could they write an accurate theology of what Jesus is like? If somebody, all, the only theology that they had for what God is like is by watching our worship, what would they write that God is like? Because the Pharisees were able to instantly recognize what Jesus is like for this crowd by watching them. And if somebody watched our lives being lived out, our worship being worked out, what would they write down? Well, I know what their God is like based on what I'm observing in their life. Second thing, you can't take worship of God too far. He is creator and he is king. Notice, when you read your Bible, no one in the Bible is ever corrected for worshiping too extravagantly. 
a few people were rebuked for uh, sort of being stick in the muds. Uh, Saul's daughter, I think it's Michael pronounced. Does that sound right, Pat? Michael? You give me the nod, okay. Uh, she was married to King David, and he was dan- dancing like a psycho person in front of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and she was a little embarrassed. Have you ever been that way? She was like, you know, tone it down. Even the slave girls were like a little bit awkward, and he said, you have seen nothing yet. We are going to drop the bass and get this going. The Bible says she was barren for the rest of her life. The relationship between David and her at that point was completely destroyed, if it hadn't been already. Another woman, Pat talked about her in our panel, poured the alabaster jar on Jesus' feet, cried on his feet, wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus, of course, said, no, this is going a little over the top, the whole feet washing thing. No, he didn't, did he? But the others did. The Bible never corrects anybody for their extravagance of their worship. Correction always comes when we don't worship God and we worship something else. Always comes. If we worship something other than God, then correction will come. You can't take worship of God too far. Finally this, Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. This is a familiar verse. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith, trusting God, pleases God. It is by faith that we have peace with God for salvation, and it's by faith that we have peace with God in living as a Christian. Knowing what makes for peace with God, faith pleases Jesus. And what each one of us as individual needs to figure out right now is whether or not we want to please Jesus. Go back to Luke chapter 19, the last verse of this section. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. You did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus implores us to come to him by faith, and he says, come Trust me for forgiveness of sin. And we cast him aside over and over and over again because we always have another day. And we need to recognize in that moment for Jerusalem, he said, you guys have missed it. The day of your visitation came and now it is passing and now what comes is judgment. And I want you to think long and hard about your relationship with Jesus. Is it characterized by peace? because you have trusted him for forgiveness or not. And if it isn't, make real sure you figure that out in a hurry, because this is the time of your visitation. You don't want to put this off. I don't know when that day is coming, but we're closer than we've ever been. The time for Christ in your life is right now. God, we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you that he came to save sinners like us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and how much you love us even though we stumble and fall in so many ways. We thank you as believers that each day your mercy is poured out on us afresh. Lord, we would pray and ask that in this moment you would move in our hearts to worship you because you are king. 
And Lord, we would pray that you would give us hearts that please you as we trust you for forgiveness. But in this moment, Lord, my heart is heavy for those who are in here that don't know you by faith. They come to church as a routine. They're hoping their good deeds are going to save them. They've tried to live a religious life. And in this moment, Lord, I would ask that you would move in their hearts to trust Jesus because he died for them. And to trust Jesus because he raised from the dead. And you are pleased when, you come to, when we come to you by faith. We thank you for the joy it is to know that one day we will be reunited with you in person. Until that day, Lord, make us strong to finish the race. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you stand up as we close with a song?